Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for Gardenmore Presbyterian Church. Keep up to date on our website, gardenmorechurch.org, or search for us on Facebook. If you have your, your Bible handy there, turn to Philippians uh, 4, Philippians 4, uh, verses 1 to 9. And if you've ever done any sort of essay writing, presentation, or, or public speaking, you, you might have heard a popular quote which comes up quite frequently, giving advice on how best to, to put across the point or points you want to make. So the quote uh, in relation to, to the audience is, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you've told them. So in other words, make your, your key point or points exceptionally clear, prepare the audience for them at the start, and remind them of them at the end. And as we move into the final chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, that seems to be what the apostle is doing. He's informed the Philippians of his key points and topics. He has explained them to them. And now in verses 1 to 9 of chapter 4, he is summarizing what he has been saying in the past three chapters. This summary comes in the form of exhortations. That's what you might see as a heading in your Bible depending on on which translation that you have. An exhortation is emphatically urging someone to do something. So Paul sets out to the believers in Philippi, here is what you are to do. Here is what you're to be. It could probably be said that these are the, the practical outworkings of what it means to live a life which is worthy of the gospel of Christ, which is one of Paul's main concerns as he writes this letter. And the apostle outlines six things in this passage, and we're going to look at the first three this, uh, this week, then in a few weeks we'll look at the other three. But today we see that the Philippians are called to stand firm, they are called to be united, and they're called to be joyful. And let me suggest this morning that it is good and important for us as God's people in this place to study Paul's words carefully here, because if these are things that the Philippian believers are called to do and to be, then so it's the same for us. So firstly, in verse 1, Paul calls the Philippian church to stand firm, something which he also asked for back back in verse 27 of chapter 1. Remember, we we have said in previous weeks that in Philippi, the, the church would have experienced a whole range of challenges in their new faith. They faced the threat of persecution, being outcasts in the society. They had constant opposition. They had to cope with enemies of the cross challenging them and the threat of false teachers hijacking their faith. And Paul's fear, I guess, as he wrote these words, was that they could have been swayed away from their faith. They could have been deterred from continuing on, enticed to these other things that could have been attractive. The the appeal of an easier life, the allure of being able to control and earn your future reward, or the attraction of not worrying about how you needed to live could have been a real draw to them, considering all that they faced. And maybe there's something about that with the Philippians that, that you can empathize with. Perhaps you've experienced 
a time in your Christian life when you just felt completely up against it, that your back was against the wall, almost uh, as if you're getting battered from one side and hit from the other, blows coming from all angles. And it could be for a whole host of reasons that you've experienced that. Because of circumstances that have transpired in your life or, or temptation that keeps showing its face. Possibly how someone is treating you because you are a Christian or due to a physical or mental illness that has gripped you. All of these things and so many others like what the Philippians faced can sway you away from Christ. It can, it can put you off. It can deter you from having faith. But the apostle exhorts them and you to stand firm. Like the, the commanding officer in a battle telling their troops to hold your ground, do not be moved. The believer is to stand firm against whatever comes our way. Now, I know that we experience different things. Currently, we've experienced different things in the past, and we will do in the future. And you might say, stand firm. That means nothing to me. How, how is that meant to help with what I face. Because you could be someone who has lost a child, a parent, a spouse, a sibling, a friend, and you are completely knocked off your feet and wonder what the point is. Or you can feel alienated from your friends and family because you're a Christian. And you know it isn't right to, to do what they do or to go where they go. And they don't understand why it isn't, and they let you know about it. We think, wouldn't it just be easier to pack it in and join in with them? Easier life, less opposition. Perhaps you have a temptation or a sin that is persistent in your life, and rather than stamp it out, you could respond by saying, well, if God loves me and has saved me, it doesn't matter if I do this because it's just what I do. And so being told to stand firm doesn't appear to be helpful. Because life might be so hard, it seems like it probably isn't enough. It seems like it isn't possible to stand firm. But notice the three very important words which follow that exhortation in verse 1. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Friends, if we tried to, to stand firm in our own way, with our own things, then yes, it wouldn't be helpful. It certainly wouldn't be possible, and it wouldn't be enough. But to stand firm in the Lord, that's a different matter. It means not to rely on ourselves, but to have a, a full reliance on God, reliance on who Scripture tells us He is, reliance on what God's Word tells us He has done and what He will do. So stand firm in the Lord. And so if you do come to those difficult times where you want to to pack it in or you want to run away, then heed the encouragement of Paul to stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord whose Scripture tells us in Psalm 33 that we read at the start is faithful in all he does. Stand firm in the one who is not slow in keeping his promises that doesn't lie or change his mind. Stand firm in the Lord whose ways are perfect and he is gracious and compassionate. The mighty rock, the refuge a fortress. Stand firm in he who does not change and is abounding in love. Our ability to stand firm 
is fully dependent on how secure what we stand in is. And God's Word is jam-packed with ways of telling us that He is the surest and firmest and most reliable of foundations. And that hasn't changed since Genesis 1 right up to now. In the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, the prophet hears of the impending victory of the evil Babylonians. And he's beside himself with worry and fear and anger. And the thing, he might have ran away. He might have been swayed to to stop trusting in God. But at the end of chapter 1, in spite of all that he faced, in spite of knowing what was coming, Habakkuk clung to the things that he knew was true of God. And what we get, if if you go home and read it, Habakkuk chapter 1, through the words of the prophet is this wonderful list describing truths about God, describing who he is, describing what he does. And Habakkuk was trying to, to stand firm by placing his feet on what he knew he could rely on. Solid ground that wouldn't shift and wouldn't move. Let's take our lead from him, believer. In seeking to stand firm in the Lord, recall who God is. Think about what he has done for you in the past and what he's promised to do in the future for those who he calls his people. But if you're here this morning or you're joining us in in the live stream or on the CD and you aren't part of God's people, I want to briefly ask you something for you to think about. When you face the uncertainties and the struggles of life, what is it that you stand firm in? And ask yourself, is it really all that secure? So we're called to stand firm in the Lord. And then in verses 2 and 3, we see that Paul calls the Philippians to be united. The, The Bible is filled with instruction and teaching for us. It reveals to us some of God's character. It unveils to us God's plan and work for salvation and and tells us of important doctrine and comforts us for the future. But what we have to remember is that it includes books and letters which were written to specific people and churches. And we're reminded of this in verse 2 when Paul addresses Eudia and Syntyche who appear to have fallen out with each other. And it's the first time that Paul's been so specific. Can you Imagine being those two women sitting in the congregation as the apostle's letter is read out to them and they are named in this letter. We aren't told why they've fallen out. We aren't told the seriousness of their argument, but it's clear that Paul's concern is the fact that they are not united and the effect that that's going to have on the rest of the the believers in Philippi, and perhaps even the work of the gospel spreading in Philippi. And this thread of desiring unity seems to to run throughout the entire letter. Paul addresses it specifically, you might recall, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Perhaps as as he wrote those words, he had these two women in mind. And while these two names have gone down in history as being the two women who were arguing in Philippians, we see that it isn't as if they are troublemakers or false teachers or they're really a thorn in the side of Paul. In fact, he describes them in a positive way. We see they had contended at his side in the cause of the gospel. Put simply, they fought with Paul 
for the gospel. They were warriors for the gospel. Considering that, how sad it is then that these two individuals had fallen out over something, possibly over nothing important, so much so that Paul felt he needed to address it for the health of the Philippian church. And so Paul exhorts them to agree, and once again we see that phrase in the Lord. The apostle says exactly what he said in chapter 2, that believers should think of each other as Christ did rather than the hatred and the discord that we see in Galatians 5 verse 20 is described as work of the flesh. We know that very sadly there's often discord and divisions within congregations and different churches. We have witnessed enough of them, and I would guess whether on a small scale or a large scale, we have experienced them in our time. And it would be nice to think that this discord and, and division comes because of crucial and important issues that are of paramount importance to the Christian faith. But the truth is, they very rarely are. What are they focused on? Well, they're focused instead on human things, such as the church buildings, such as decorations, on organizations or the music that should be played and how it should be played. Often family or neighbor issues are brought into the church from outside, or there's just a massive clash of personalities that makes people dislike each other. But isn't it so sad to see that when it happens with a church setting? Because like Eudia and Syntyche, believers are contending at each other's side in the cause of the gospel in this place. And Paul makes clear this shouldn't be happening. And in fact, they should be agreeing, they should be of the same mind in the Lord. In other words, put into perspective what's important. Eudia and Syntyche had lost sight of that, and we do as well, or we are at the very least tempted to do that same thing. But Paul refocuses us by telling believers to agree in the Lord. So this morning, if there is someone who maybe is a member of this congregation or they are a believer that you know from elsewhere and you are divided from them and you have some sort of long-running disagreement, then maybe reading this passage today is the time to move past that. This passage calls believers to be united, and that includes you and that person that you can't stand the way they are, or that individual who does things differently to you. I'm fairly sure that I've said it before in this series of sermons in Philippians, but what Paul has made clear to the Philippians is that what unites them is far more important than anything that could divide them. We would do very well to remember that. Our love of Jesus, our faith in God, our hope for the future should be enough to unite us and not to allow these squabbles and these divisions to creep in over things that in the grand scheme are not that important. And then finally and, and briefly, Paul calls the Philippians to be joyful. We obviously don't know how Paul intended these words to be uh, read or how he intended them to be put across when, when they were read, but don't you just get the feeling that verse 4 should be read out with such gusto and emphasis? 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. And again, this idea of joy isn't new in this letter because we see it in both chapter 2 and chapter 3. It's a real focus of Paul as he writes this letter. But here he declares, as we saw with the boys and girls earlier, that they should always rejoice in the Lord. So in every experience and in every aspect, rejoice in the Lord. And this is so important to Paul that he emphasizes it immediately by saying, I will say it again. However, by this, Paul doesn't mean that when something negative happens, we should celebrate it or we should smile about it or or be happy about it. It doesn't mean walking around with this inane grin on your face or the concept that we find in Bobby McFerrin's song, don't worry, be happy. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, we see that Paul writes that he was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. But to rejoice in the Lord is to find joy in the fact that God is sovereign over us and in control of the world. It is to take joy in the fact that God loves us and has saved us through the death of Jesus. It is finding joy in Paul's words that we looked at a few weeks ago at the end of chapter 3 when he calls us citizens of heaven and we await the return of Jesus and the perfection that he will bring. And so as I said earlier, that means that we can rejoice always in the Lord and in these things, in every circumstance, because these things never change. They are always the same, regardless of how much the world changes. No matter which country is the superpower, no matter who is the president of the United States, they never change depending on what virus or illness or tragedy has struck the world. They don't change depending on what state our life is in. God will remain sovereign. He will continue to love us. He has still saved us, and we still look forward to that future hope. Do you see how we can rejoice in the Lord at all times? I am well aware that we may not do it with a smile on our face. We may not do it with excessive happiness in our voice, but the Bible doesn't give that expectation. However, it does make clear and it does give the expectation that we have reason to rejoice in the Lord at all times. So ask yourself this morning, how are these words from Paul going to impact on your life? Because that's, that's the point of studying God's word this morning. How do you need to stand firm in the Lord or how are you going to stand firm in the Lord when the time comes? Which brother or sister in Christ do you need to seek unity with? And finally, do you rejoice in the Lord always or only whenever it's suitable and dependent on our mood? Let's pray. Father God, help us to put your word into action in our lives. Thank you for the clarity with which the Apostle Paul wrote and how it so often cuts right to the center of our own lives today. Sovereign Lord, we ask for your help in standing firm in our faith no matter what faces us.
aid us as we seek unity with one another and try to overcome differences and disagreements. And remind us of the the joy that we should have because of the great and holy God that you are and all that you have done for us. We ask this through the name of Jesus. Amen.